So things like that, I just need to be told repeatedly. But that's where you can, you can um, get encouragement even from your friends. I mean, this is the type of thing that, sadly, I don't know Christians do this that often, but would be good. It'd be something like, hey, guys, I've been really struggling with contentment um, with, say, your job or something. And I, I would just, I'd, my faith's weak, and I could use some encouragement in what's true. And if you catch me grumbling, complaining, you call me on it because I'm really committed to stopping that. I'm really committing to pick that up by the roots. Um, th- things like that. And this is practically, and again, it gets back to sort of like worth counseling. A lot of what most of pastoral counseling is helping identify. So here's the lie that you're tempted to believe. Here's the fruit you bear when you believe and act on that lie. Here's the truth. And here are practical means of combating the truth, the lie with the truth. And it's just comes, sometimes people are, you know, taking flashcards with Bible verses on them or whatever. Get, get, get practical. I mean, this is partly why Scripture commends hiding it in our hearts. So I'd say memorizing those truths that are important. Um, putting them in front of your face. Getting a sermon series where someone's teaching on those truths. I mean, I want to soak my mind in this truth because I want to believe it. And if I find my heart isn't believing it, like, yeah, I know that's what it says, but. Okay, then now what can I do? I, I can't make myself believe what I don't believe, but I can, I can, I'm not, I'm going to look at this and not look away and trust that this is life and light and trust God that you're going to pierce my heart with it. I can't pierce my heart with it, but I can not look away and not blink and stay facing it and get rid of anything that distracts me from it. I can do that much, right? So that's sometimes all you can do. I mean, that's what fighting by faith is, Um does that, does that help at all? Does that make sense at all? Okay. Okay. Other questions, thoughts? Yes, in the back, Tim. Yes. 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 I've got lots of partial lists. Um, <laughs> no, I do. But that's... Right. Well, no, no, no. There, there's... Uh, the, the scripture is filled with a lot of those. And once you start looking for it, it becomes easier. So that example in Hebrews, right? There's a logic. Protect yourself from the love of money. For, he has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's not obvious initially what the relationship of those two statements are. The, the assumed middle piece is money is tempting precisely because I'm tempted to think God won't leave or forsake me. So you start filling in, what's this telling us about the lies of, at least some of the lies of money? They're, money can have all types of lies. The lie might be, you'll prove to everybody you're important and powerful when they see your nice car. But here, in at least Hebrews 13, the lie is about security and deliverance and, and safety. And so that's giving us insight. Okay, apparently one of the reasons we're tempted to love money is because we trust it to protect us and preserve us because we don't trust God to do it. Oh, that's really insightful. So it's sometimes just chewing on and, and, and meditating on what Scripture says and getting some of the implied logic. I'll give you another one that jumped out at me. Um, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6. Four, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, how does that four work? I'm to bear one another's burdens, 
fulfill the law of Christ. For, because, if I think I'm something when I'm nothing, I deceive myself. I think it's suggesting that my unwillingness to bear your burdens is because I think more highly of myself and consequently more lowly of you. And I've seen that bear out. There are certain sins the body of Christ is far less tolerant of, usually relating around drug addiction or alcohol and stuff. And there can be a matter of, I don't want to help bear your burdens because that's going to be a mess. And why couldn't you keep yourself off that? Why couldn't you not do that? And so, again, the implied logic of that text, Galatians 6, 2 into 3, that 4 is what's going to prevent me from bearing another's burdens. I think too highly of myself. But that's not, that doesn't just jump out at you. So then you imply the, the lie. What's the lie going on in my heart for why I shouldn't have to bear someone's burden? Because it's their own stupid fault that they are struggling with that. And if they were more like me, they wouldn't struggle with that. So they can jolly well just be more like me. When you say it like that, you start realizing the self-righteousness of it, right? But, you know, um, so it's, it's, yes, there's, there's plenty of lists. I can point your resources. I don't know if there'll ever be an exhaustive list. Our enemy is wily and, and, and cunning, but there's plenty of helps, especially in various topics. I mean, I've got an idea of taking some as an example of trying to figure out what's going on in them. A lot of counseling is just figuring out, like, what's going on in the heart undergirding issues, you know? Right. Right. But some of the most common lies can be helpful. And as you think through these things, and as you talk to people, you're going to find some of the more common lies that our hearts give and, and spot them more readily. But sometimes it can be, it can be trickier. Um, I'll give you one example. I was doing premarital with a friend of mine um, when I was out in California, and he was dealing with issues of anger, not, not big levels of anger, but just enough that put an edge to his words. And it was, it was harming. It was hurting his fiance. And trying to figure out like what's what's going on why am i getting angry and the the so he started paying attention to when he was provoked and tempted and he, and he was dismayed because every time he'd do it he'd he'd feel awful and he'd confess it and he'd why am i still doing this it would come basically it was anger over his fiance not being as mentally quick as him if he explained something to her and he thought he explained it well once and she didn't get it the first time he'd become impatient Okay, so let's start unpacking this, right? James 4, this is we start using the Bible. What causes quarrels and conflicts among you? You have desires. I want something. I demand something. So what is it he's demanding? I demand you to be as smart as me. I demand you, why should I have to be slowed down by you? Can't you keep up, right? Really what's undergirding the anger is self-righteousness. I'm the measure of all things. It's not good to be a shepherd and stoop down and meet with people who are below you. People need to come up to you. And it's the exact opposite attitude of our Savior, right? He, he leaves his glory, comes down. And until you see that's what's going on, you're just going to be picking anger fruit off the tree, which is sometimes all you can do. I, just, I see myself getting angry, and I use some self-control, and I ask God for help, and I silence my mouth, and I confess it. Like, that's great, but you really want to get to the root of it, figure out the lie that's going on is something about, I shouldn't have to be slowed down by the likes of you. And you start saying it like that, and you, the obvious ugliness of it jumps right out at you, right? But um, 
oftentimes we're just experiencing the fruit of it, the anger. Well, what's undergirding the anger? And then you got to sort of track it down to what's going on in the heart and the mind. You know, three or four different people may all struggle with the exact same sin for different reasons. You know, take something like uh, pornography or lust. For somebody, it's self-pity. For another person, it's rewarding themselves. For another person, it's um, about uh, identity. And, and, you know, I'm virile, and I like to think of myself as this man who can get anyone, whatever. It could be different things going on. Our hearts are, are deceitful and wicked, and <laughs> it takes some skill to draw it out. But Right, right, right. 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 Yeah. No, it, it does. And uh, I, one of the things that God uses to keep me humble, my wife is one. When I'm driving, I don't see. I don't get like furious, angry, but I'll be driving like, and she'll say, "I'm sure if he knew who was behind him, he wouldn't be doing that. If he knew it was you, he would, he'd get out of the way." And, and she says it with a smile on her face, but it's a gentle way of sort of poking my pride. And, you know, like, this guy, not, you of all people, I can't, does he know who you are? <laughs> That's, amen. 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 Okay. I mean, and I got more examples. We can go on this, but questions before I just take over with examples of things like this. Um, yes. Oh, no, well, hold on. microphone, microphone. I missed a blank. I didn't. Did I miss a blank? Oh, no, sorry, go. Oh. I think the speakers are just right there. That's it, I think. Oh. Okay. Oh. But the point is, I paid attention when he said, uh, I will not forsake you and never leave you. Yes. And I believe that promise applies to me, but is there somewhere I can help another believer determine that, yes, you also, not just the disciples, believers. Mm. So let's go to Hebrews 13.5. That's where I was. Sorry, Hebrews 13, 5. No, no, that's a fair example because there are promises that God makes to individuals in space and time that he doesn't necessarily make to us. He tells Peter, go catch a fish, there'll be a coin in its mouth. That's not really a promise to you, right? Um, what? I tried yesterday. Okay. Hebrews 13. So I take Hebrews 13, and let's just take a look at the context and see if it's... And no, it could be specifically to certain people. Paul gives charges to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. And then you set the context and figure out, is this valid for us to claim for ourselves, to apply to ourselves? Because there's plenty of times we're wrong. Everyone likes to cite the verse, I know the plans, I have few plans for blessing. That's about the restoration of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. So I'm not saying you couldn't apply it to yourself. You would need to justify the application to yourself because of what a specific context it is. Okay, so Hebrews 13 and we'll pick it up in ooh, um, verse I don't know, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, am I in the wrong verse? It's 13. Oh, I'm way ahead. It's 13.5. 
I'm sorry. Let's start with verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bill be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual moral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And I'd say it appears in a list that seems to be general um, ethical exhortation to the readers of this letter. Um, nothing else in this list of instructions and imperatives, because really the promise is undergirding the imperative, the command, keep your life free from the love of money because he's promised this. Um, and so given its location in, in Hebrews, I'd say, no, this is a general ethical instruction and it's therefore rightly received by all who are calling themselves Christians who are reading this letter. I don't know if you want more into it than that, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but that's, but that's, a, no, that's a fantastic question. I appreciate people saying, yeah, but how can I count on this with me? Right. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Yes, Alex. Yeah, there is no sin that doesn't start with believing lies. There is no sin that doesn't start with believing lies. All sin is lived out unbelief. All sin is lived out unbelief. It's, it's, it's part of the connection between why when somebody is walking in sin long enough, we can say we don't think you're a believer. Why? Because you're living out habitual unbelief. That's why. Um, that's the connection between the two. So... Yeah, what we believe and the lies we believe are critical. And so if you think of a tree bearing fruit, dealing with the anger when the anger pops up, dealing with lust when lust pops up, dealing with coveting when coveting pops up is great. You need to have a strategy in, in your Christian life to resist temptation in the moment. But if you want to get to the roots of the tree, you've got to figure out what the lies are that are feeding into it. Um, what, what the lies you're believing or the half-truths you're believing that are feeding into it that are, that are bearing the fruit. Um, and so dealing with both a strategy for both is, is critical. Um, absolutely. Anything else or is that, Oh, Drew. So you mentioned there was some overlap between some of these pieces of armor and, uh, you mentioned Luke four, right? Where yeah. Being tempted. Yeah. Um, and it seems like he even uses the sword in, in a defensive manner towards these temptations of Satan. Um, and so there does seem to be some overlap between the shield yeah. of faith and, and the sword of the word. Uh, but is there any uh, offensive uses of the sword for the Christian in their practical walk? Yes. Paul, go to Second Corinthians 10. I mean, there is an offensive battle as we 
preach the gospel, as we strive with others to help. I mean, in a very real sense, we're giving counsel all the time. So when I say counseling. I don't want you to think of some specialized thing. Anytime you speak, you're helping someone frame reality, right? You're, you're, you are offering counsel. Um, and so all counseling is spiritual warfare in that sense, because Paul frames spiritual warfare as over what people believe or think. So second Corinthians 10 verse three, for though we're walking in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We're destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So verse five, spiritual warfare is about arguments, opinions, knowledge, and thoughts. And so Paul is setting up a school in the, in this renting out the school of Tyrannus and he's um, teaching and he's, trying to get people to think things and that's warfare he as he's battling as paul goes out to athens on mars hill and he preaches the gospel there's a very real sense in which that's warfare i'm trying to take people's thoughts captive to christ and right now they're captive to all these greek gods so evangelism is spiritual warfare it's active and it's offensive um and counseling is you know if i'm talking to somebody who's thinking about leaving their wife because he's angry with her what he thinks, what he believes, what he plans to do. There's a real battle going on. For him, it's a defensive battle, but as me coming along and helping, it is somewhat offense, right? I mean, or support, if you want to think of it that way. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at mainly with the defense is that it's not fundamentally, it's always going to be personal. Even as it's offensive and evangelism, it's, it's the fight over your heart. It's never the fight over America or the fight over the West or the crusades or anything like that. Not that there won't be impacts. If enough as individual people follow Christ, bow the knee to Christ in Martinsdale, the the society of Martinsdale will alter. It'll have societal change. And we can see even how Christianity affected the West and affected governments in the world and epochs. But the battle is always at the individual heart level and mind level. It's never, we got to get this bill passed. As if that's the battle. This might be a just and righteous bill that we want to see passed. The battle didn't shift to the bill. The battle was always and only individual hearts and minds. That's, does that, that's the more of the distinction I'm trying to get at because I think we can get distracted about we need to get this. I, I rejoice when righteous judges are installed. I rejoice when righteous laws pass. I think we ought to be involved in trying to see that happen. That's not the battle. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. And even, but even I'm saying, even when the battle is offensive, it's still only about individual people. It's never not about what people think and believe. Now the actions flow out from it. That's all. It's it's always personal, individual. Here in Ephesians, it's the defensive battle to persevere and stand and fight. But even in one sense where he ends in Ephesians 6 praying for Paul, I'd say that's offensive. It's defensive for Paul. Paul sitting in jail and saying, I might get timid. Please pray that I don't. Me praying for Paul is sort of I'm, I'm advancing. I'm helping, coming alongside of Paul, helping him. Um, and so 
as the gospel goes out, as according to Colossians, the gospel bears fruit in all the world or Jesus' example of the leaven and the loaf, as it spreads, as it, as it goes out, God's kingdom is advancing. I'm not called to advance his kingdom. I'm sure I'll pay, take part in advancing his kingdom. I'm not called to advance his kingdom. I'm not aware of any commands like that I'm to go bring in the kingdom of God. Uh, it's fundamentally guard your own heart and your own walk and trust that God's going to advance his kingdom through people who are guarding their hearts. If that makes any, does that make any sense? Okay. Other questions or thoughts? Matthew. Okay. Mm. Sure. I think one of the things that I'd, I'd recommend all Christians to do is to, we see this model in, in prayer, uh, in, in Psalm 139, examine my heart, show me if there's any wrong way in me. Part of being alert, we're going to get into that also next week, Do I am I aware of what sins I'm particularly tempted by, what types of assaults I'm particularly likely to get um, ensnared by? Um I'm not I'm not likely to get ensnared by gambling. Just not something I've ever been particularly tempted by. Not that I shouldn't have a general protection from it. I'm sure I could become a, a raging gambler. It's not one of the things that I'm regularly tempted by. So I, I think we should be aware of where the enemy attacks and have some idea, have given some thought, examining our hearts, examining our minds in God's word, of trying to figure out what are the lies I'm regularly believing. What are the lies I'm regularly believing? And then proactively being ready to grab the truth that speaks to them in the battle. It's great if in the moment you can identify the lie and speak to it, raise up the shield of faith. You're probably going to be most effective at that if you've prepared beforehand. So say self-entitlement, something I think we all, we all agree with. Some desire of mine was thwarted, whether it's I got a red light or the guy in front of me is driving poorly or, I mean, I got to, you know, wear a mask in this store, whatever. Something I wanted, something I expected, something I want. And the temptation is to grumble. The temptation is to, to grumble. And again, I'm not saying it's anything wrong with avoiding a store that makes you wear a mask if you don't want a mask. That's, the grumbling is always wrong. The grumbling and complaining is always wrong. And I'm tempted to grumble and complain. Someone's driving slow. They're out of my favorite, you know, pizza topping or whatever it is. Right. So I know that regularly I am tempted by the lie that I have more rights and I'm more important than I think I am. I cannot confess with Jesus. I'm a worm, no longer a man when he prayed Psalm 22. Um, and Romans 12 warns us that we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But each one of us needs to think with sober judgment. And so I need to be ready at a moment's notice with truth to speak to those lies about my worth, my importance, what I deserve, what I have a right to, and to start battling it by speaking that truth to my own heart when those desires to grumble come up. So going into the fight, I'm ready knowing where the arrows will likely come from. I've got truth on hand ready to raise up, and then I can fight effectively. Because part of it is that three-part thing at the end of the notes that said, identify the lie, Know what God's word says to it and speak the truth to it. And so you may get sideswiped by some temptation you never saw coming. Okay, fine. Get up and 
learn how to respond to it better next time. So it would be practically collecting God's truth and his promises and what he says around the topics you struggle with. And whether you're memorizing them, I know people who have written, I used to have uh, a pack of verses that related to things I thought I needed to be focusing on throughout the day. And every time I went to the bathroom, I was going to go out and read through my five flashcards with verses. Okay, I'm going to remind myself of these truths every time I go to the bathroom. I'm just committed to doing that, right? Um, those would be practical ways, I think, to, to raise the shield of faith. I, I need to be able to get a hold of this truth quickly. I need to be able to uh, put my mind, direct it to my mind to it um, regularly and swiftly. Does that, I mean, I can get more practical, but I need to know more specifics, if that makes, if that makes any sense. It's something you have to actively lift up. It's something you actively have to lift up. So if I am angry, let's say I'm angry at my wife. My wife has been rude to me. She's disrespected me. She's shamefully treated me. I'm not saying this happens with any regularity or anything. But let's just say I believe I've been done wrong by her, right? Um, and in one sense, there's nothing wrong in me feeling grieved or hurt by that, right? I mean, that's, that's an appropriate response. Um, but the anger is rising up. I can just sit there and let it rule me. And I can, you know, open my mouth and speak in anger. Or I can just go off and walk away and just be good and angry for the next 45 minutes. Or, and in which case I'd say in that case, the fire arrows hit me and I'm burning. And I'm just, I don't care, I'm burning, whatever. Or I can say, hold on. Some part of me recognizes this isn't a righteous response. And I'm still angry. I know it's not a righteous response, but I don't care. I'm still angry. Okay, Jeremy. And I got to go through and just rehearse, what do I know that's true? What do I know that's true? Find out where it is. And then that can turn into prayer. I wouldn't even say this is offense, this is, but this is actively fighting temptation. Okay, what's going on? I think I shouldn't have to suffer in loving my wife. I think that when she is is unkind, I get to respond with harshness and anger because I'm that important. And then I have to remind myself, Jesus died for his bride. He's more important than I am. And yet he was willing to suffer mistreatment and ignominy to serve her. But apparently I'm not willing to do that. Okay. And then, then maybe my heart says, yeah, I still don't care. Okay, now I'm really zeroing in. Like, God, you've just shown me how self-righteous and proud I am that I'm not willing, I, I demand more rights than Jesus did. And maybe you're just crying out, God, humble me, break my heart, because I know it's true, but my heart doesn't really, but you're finding where the battle is, and you're trying to raise that shield to protect that truth. Now, hopefully, God's word, empowered by his spirit, will shatter those thoughts and those strongholds. But even Paul speaking of spiritual warfare taking place in strongholds, there are some places of thought they are going to hold out for a while that you're going to have to repeatedly raise that shield to protect. But Paul's point in Ephesians is it will extinguish them. Um, but I wouldn't expect a stronghold necessarily to go down the first time you go, you know, you may have to hold it up for a, a bit. But we should expect, yes, to win. Jennifer. Oh. 
Oh, no, Matthew's next, then Jennifer. Get those steps in, Matt. Our faithful mic attendant is walking across the room. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, that's, this is, I mean, the, maybe the way I'm framing it might be a different than the way someone else frames it, but this is, in many respects, bread and butter of Christian walk. Identifying lies, responding with truth, memorizing, soaking your mind in the truth, particularly the truths that help strengthen you in your fight against the lies the enemy's coming at you with. And those battles will shift throughout your life. The battle might be more in your entitlement and you have a right to, and it might be over here, I want and I need, and over here it might be something else. But thankfully, God doesn't, I think, allow us, well, I'm not, I think, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. So the, the battle usually is only waging on a couple fronts. It's not waging on every front simultaneously, praise God. But it can move, and it can it can suddenly strike i mean the end of the passage in luke 4 the devil withdrew until an opportune time which means the devil is also picking times and so that's another thing is i can figure out when i'm when i tend to be weak uh, i'll tell you when i tend to be weak mondays i'm usually exhausted on mondays and mondays can be a bad day just for me um feeling self-entitled or not sorry for myself but kind of self-indulgent you know i and so I got to watch out a lot of times on Mondays just because that's when I can be prone. Usually when I've been gearing up for a message going into Friday and Saturday, I'm on my most A game, you know. Um, doesn't mean I can't be susceptible to temptation on a Friday or Saturday. But I know that Monday or Tuesday, if I'm going to be lethargic and lazy spiritually, way more likely to be Mondays and Tuesdays than Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Um, that's just me. And so I know to be more on my guard there. And so part of that is also being alert and vigilant so that you're, I think, part of raising the shield is is recognizing when you're likely to be tempted. Um, you know, if I... <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I'm going to bramble on and you want to ask your question, Matthew. Sorry. It's all good. Okay. Thank you, sir. 
feel myself like maybe this is kind of falling more into the wrong way than it should. How do I fight that when we live in a world where I need that to do all of these things that as a husband it is my my duty and responsibility to ensure that those things happen? Sure. Um great question. And with four minutes to go, I'll do the best I can to try to I can um the first part is you just even to identify it, right? And to identify with the fruit it bears. So love of, so like, how do I, first of all, how do I distinguish whether I have a legitimate godly concern over arranging our finances and ordering our life, which we ought to have. I'm, no one's, if your response is, I don't want to love money, so I'm just not going to work and I'm not going to worry about it and God's going to give me what I need. Um, there are other passages in scripture where Paul says we ought to work with our hands and and live a quiet life, dignified and godly. The thief ought no longer to steal, but let him learn how to work with his own hand. I mean, so the virtue of work as a theological good is is there. So we need to be working, even if the working we're doing isn't paid. We're never not to work. Aside from seasons of rest, Sabbaths and seasons of rest, no one, even even someone in their 80s, is is meant to work in the sense of doing productive good. Maybe the productive good for a widow's list is praying for the saints. You're working at prayer. But never is it just, I get to do leisure for the rest of my life now, right? So on the one hand, I need to be diligent and faithful with work. If, you, if you're out of work, Jay Adams says in one of his books, okay, fine, your job now is to look for a job 40 hours a week. And if you're being faithful that, you're being faithful that. We, we want to get the goal off of I'm getting the money to I'm being faithful. So God would have me be faithful with working or looking for work or whatever. And if I find myself worried, but what if I don't get a job? What if I don't get the paycheck? What if they foreclose on the house? What if, I mean, what if, you know. Um, then as you identify the fear, this is, this is just getting back to self-counsel, realizing what it's rooted in. It's rooted in lack of trust in God or overvaluing those things. Is there anything wrong in owning a home? No, there's nothing wrong in owning a home. Do you sin if you stop owning a home? No, right? I mean, and so recognizing as those fears come up, I think oftentimes we can tell our idols by how shaken up we are when they're threatened, right? So there's nothing wrong in wanting to be healthy and not to go blind, like my brother-in-law may be struggling with. There's nothing wrong with that. You'll find out how much it matters to you by how much you get shaken up when it's threatened. You find out how much you care. How much do I put my trust in this world and this life when I find out I get the cancer diagnosis? How much does that shake me up? I mean, really shaking up. Not that there isn't room for grief. Not that there isn't room for like, oh man, this is going to be rough. This is not what I wanted. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. There's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but if you're just to the core rattled, yeah, then that to me is a good indicator. I, I, I'm holding on to these things more tightly than I ought to. And then I'd start tracking it back. So in your case with finances, identifying what behavior or what, emotional experience evidences an overconcern on money right and then start just taking the battle to that d- defensively raising up the shield defensively on that what lies am i particularly believing what what am i thinking oftentimes it's uh if i just made a little more money then i'd be safe and I'll, I'll give you an- anecdotal evidence for myself one of the ways that i was trusting in money wrongly is Serena and I wanted to uh, start having a family, and I wanted to make sure I had a job lined up first. And so we, we, we delayed. I'm not saying there's any reason. I'm not saying there are no good reasons to delay children. I think my reason was not good. So I'm just speaking anecdotally. So we're going through seminary, and we're, 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 we're 
actively trying to say no to the blessing of children, right? And then we got within nine months of graduation, and Serena's like, so we can start not trying to stop having children. And what rose up in my heart was, well, I'd like to get my first job first. And it clicked all of a sudden that even if I had a job, even if I had a church say, come, we're going to pay you a quarter million dollars a year, I could lose that the next day. There was no promise of security there. I mean, once you, once, once you have a kid, <laughs> you're, you're on the hook for at least 18 years. So there was no security that my doubting heart couldn't want more security. Because what, what, what surprised me, I thought that once we got within nine months of seminary, then we, and all of a sudden my heart had another reason why I wanted to wait. Well, why don't, why don't we wait till I have my first job at a church? And I'm saying my own motives, I realized there was no end to that. I got a job. Why don't I wait till I've been here a year and I know it's a good fit and it's working out well? And then we get to that. Well, why don't I wait? And, and I realized there was no amount of, I wanted the security that money was going to give me that money could never actually give me because money is unsure, Right. And so th- I became convicted that my reasons for delaying children were, un- were unrighteous, um, that there was no amount of security that could make me feel secure. You could give me, the money could be in the bank. Well, the stock market could close. I could get fired tomorrow, right? And so that was convicting for me. But once, I, once the Lord was good enough to show that to me, I would say, okay. And uh, we changed what we were doing. Now, in God's sovereignty, we, we didn't have, God didn't give us kids for another almost two years. Um, f- but we changed our, our behavior there because I was convicted that I'm doing this out of a trust that money will give me security. And I didn't know that until that happened. Initially, I thought I'm just trying to be a wise and a good steward. And somebody else might have made that decision precisely being a wise, good steward. I found out my reasoning was wicked or corrupt when the goalposts started moving further. And when I really, and I saw, oh, my heart just wants more and more security in money. And once I saw that, I was like, okay, then that's not good. So sometimes God has to show us where we're trusting in things. And you can just sort of be suspicious. Like, I wonder if I like this too much. Like, how will I know if I value my kids and my family too much? Threaten it. That's how. And then what happens? I ought to love my wife and my kids. Can a person make an idol out of their wife and kids? Oh, absolutely they can. I'm not sure you can even find out if you've done that until it's threatened. Anyway, we can talk more afterwards. Godspeed. God bless. Thank you.